and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper and not the, and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things? Says the Lord, shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Our New Testament text, Matthew 21 Verses 23 through 46. Matthew 21, 23 through 46. Now, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude. For all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. 
Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me now? Our great God and Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. Your word, O God, is a sword that pierces to the very core of who we are. It is a hammer that comes to break our pride. Father, we pray that you would indeed humble us under your word. Teach us by your word. Let us not leave your word without repentance and without faith in Christ. Let us not go away from your word hardened, but softened, convicted, encouraged, challenged, and built up in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last battle, which is C.S. Lewis's final book in his Narnia series, um, Aslan the Lion, who if you've read the story, you know he's the, he's the Christ figure in, in Lewis's allegory. He, uh, he sets free this group of dwarfs who've been imprisoned in a stable. Um, uh, he offers them freedom and life and a place in his kingdom. He's, Aslan is like Christ here. He's bringing in this new creation. He's bringing in heaven. Um, but the dwarfs stubbornly refuse to accept it. And they are blind to it. They can't see what he's offering them. And, and even when he spreads before them this rich, magical feast, they can't taste it. They don't acknowledge it. They won't accept it. They're locked into their unbelief. Um, Lewis writes this. He says, Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. 
But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. And very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and quarreling till in a few minutes there was a fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes. When, it, when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Aslan says, you see, they will not let us help them. They've chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison. Loved ones, that's what unbelief does. It locks us into a prison so that we can't see the glorious feast of the gospel. Won't accept it. Won't, won't, won't see it. Can't taste it. And this is exactly what we see happening to the Jewish authorities with our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has performed miracles and he has preached the gospel with singular, one-of-a-kind power and authority and grace and love. Um, and now he's, he's, he's done that for three years. And now he's ridden into Jerusalem claiming to be the Christ. He's, he's purified the temple and people have come in and he's healed all the people coming into the temple. And, and the children are praising him. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. The kids can see it. The kids can taste the kingdom of heaven. They see it. But the religious leaders, their eyes are so blind. They should be the first to see, shouldn't they? But their eyes are blind and they, they, they don't see the glories of Christ. They don't taste the goodness of Christ. They don't, they don't smell the rich aroma of the gospel. They just sit back, arms crossed, looking at Jesus, suspicious, not bowing, not, not repenting, not accepting Him, not recognizing they need to be changed. They're intractably stubborn. Why? Why are they so stubborn? Why are we so stubborn? Well, our hearts, apart from the grace of God, don't want to bow down to Him. Our hearts don't want to repent before Him and have to change everything about our inside and everything about our outside. Right, Our heart and our habits. We don't want to have to change these things. Repentance cuts against the grain of our sinful nature. And like Lewis's dwarfs, choose to consign ourselves to never seeing, tasting, and enjoying the glories of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and stubbornly insist on our own condemnation. Our Lord Jesus is coming after our unbelief in these verses that we read this morning. Uh, he's going hard after the Pharisees' unbelief, especially in the, the passage we read. The gloves are coming off. Um, this is, things are coming to a head here. This is the knockout round of, 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 of the conflict with the Pharisees. Throughout the rest of uh, through all this chapter 21 and then chapter 22, it's going to be Christ and the Pharisees and, and, the, and the priests really going at it. And then it's going to end with the, 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 the religious leaders walking away, asking, no, daring not to ask any more questions. And then in chapter 23, our Lord 
speaking woes upon, upon Israel for rejecting him. So Christ is pressing the point. He's pressing the point home. Will you bow to me? Will you accept my authority? Will you repent and receive my grace and my kingdom? Or will you receive the wrath of God? It's a call to repentance, um, this text. Uh, Three headings to unpack this call to repentance under. Uh, The first one is this. Give up your authority in verses 23 through 27. Give up your authority. This is the first issue that that our Lord um, addresses with the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, So Christ is teaching in the temple, and and they come up to him, uh, the chief priests and the scribes together, and they confront him. They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? What has Jesus just done? He came in and he cleansed the temple. He's welcomed all the, all, the, all, the, all the sick and infirm, and he's healed them. And now he's accepting the praise of, 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 of others. And, and now he's teaching, he's preaching in the temple itself. Um, and, and, and so they want to know why he's doing these things. Who let you in? Who, who gave you a license to do these things here? Um, imagine if one Sunday uh, we all came into church, I come into church, and there's someone else up here. I've never... He's not part of our church, and he's up here, he's preaching, teaching, he's kicking people out. I mean, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, they come into the temple, their temple. Who's this guy kicking people out? We didn't say he could do that. We said they could say. He's, where is he getting this authority from? He's acting like he owns the place. And they're saying, implicitly, we own this place. Jesus doesn't respond with a direct answer to them. Um, because what their question they're asking is not really the right question to be asking. But he doesn't respond with a direct answer. Instead, he flips it around and he gives them a question. He says, if you answer my question first, then, then I'll answer your question. He says, John's baptism, from heaven or from man? Uh, John's ministry, which is marked especially by his baptizing and his preaching about the kingdom of heaven, uh, had sent shockwaves through Palestine. It had, it had shaken things up. John was, was, was a sort of a celebrity. Um, he had all the marks of a true prophet. He was calling people to repentance. He was preaching with, with, uh, with, with passion and fervor, and God was bringing crowds to see him. The Jews had not had a prophet for generations, and now John was there with this undeniable supernatural blessing on his ministry. Um, and, and, the, and the climax of John's ministry was to point at Jesus and say, look, there's the Lamb of God coming to save sinners. His, his, his whole ministry, this powerful prophetic ministry he was doing, was a prelude to Jesus, the warm-up act to get people ready to listen to Christ and to see Christ. John said, I must decrease, he must increase, pointing people to Christ. The majority of the Jews thought John was a genuine prophet. If John's a genuine prophet, it means Jesus is the Christ. So what's Jesus doing with his question? He's putting them... He's putting the priests and the scribes in a dilemma here. If they acknowledge, yes, John's ministry came from heaven. He was sent by God. Then they have to acknowledge what? That Jesus also is sent from God. And that his authority comes from God. And that he is indeed 
the Messiah. But if they deny that John was sent from God, then there'll be a public outcry and they'll lose their reputations and their influence and their respect. So they huddle up and they, they are whispering together, what are we gonna, how are we going to answer this, this question? Um, what's strikingly absent from their, from their little discussion together, how are we going to answer Jesus, is any concern for what's actually true. You notice that? Um, they have one concern. Their power. Their authority. Not truth. They don't say, well, let's, let's turn to Isaiah and see what Isaiah says about the Messiah and what he's going to be like. And maybe then we'll know. Let, 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 let's go read in Malachi about the messenger God was going to send before he sent the Christ and see if John really was according to the Scriptures. They don't do any of that. They don't care about the truth. They just care about staying in charge. And they won't face up to either answer and the consequences of either answer. So they give a political answer. We don't know. It's their job to know. They're the religious leaders. It's their job to teach the people how to respond to a prophet, to know if he's a a true prophet or not. This is their duty, but they're... We don't know. So Jesus says, well, I won't answer your question either. Because he sees that they're not interested in the truth. They're just interested in their own power and maintaining their own position. They know exactly who he is and where his authority is coming from. He has, he has shown that he himself comes with authority. His whole ministry, and Matthew has shown us this over and over again, has been an authoritative ministry, as powerful a ministry as, as John the Baptist's ministry was. Jesus' ministry completely eclipsed it with the power of his preaching and the power of his, of his miracles, he was giving sight to the blind and making lame, lame, lame people walk and forgiving people's sins and raising the dead and stilling storms with a word. Asking him where his authority comes from is like asking the sun where its light comes from. He just has it, doesn't he? It's so self-evident. He acts with the very power of God. But they don't want to accept that and bow to Him. There's a deep tragedy in this. Um, Because they're refusing to bow to Him, they're not going to enjoy the salvation that He offers them. If they would just bow to His authority, give up their own authority and bow to His... I mean, their sins would be forgiven. Their lives would be changed. They'd know the grace of God in Christ. They would, they would know the, the glories of the gospel. But they're just trying to hang on to their own little pocket of authority in their own lives instead of bowing to Him. That's them. Uh, what about us, loved ones? We're not openly arguing with Christ, are we? We're not going into the temple, and there's Jesus, and he's saying something, and we start saying, well, hang on, where's your authority come from? No, we're, we're not doing that. And we're not like them plotting together how we're going to take him down. Um, and yet, don't we still struggle with his authority? 
and accepting his authority. We like to keep our own little areas of authority over our own little kingdoms that we set up for ourselves. We want to be in charge of our own lives. I'll run my home how I want to run my home. Raise my kids how I want to raise my kids. Spend my free time the way I want to spend my free time. My attitude at work will be up to me. What how I use my phone, how I what what books I read, how I eat my food. Those are all under my authority. If that's your attitude, brothers and sisters, um, even in those little things, maintaining my own authority over my life, um, then you have not fully accepted that Jesus is indeed the one sent from heaven who has all authority in heaven and on earth. To follow Christ is to give up your claim to your authority and it's to bow to Him in your heart and in all your habits. We, we hang on to our authority because we believe the, the, the twin lines that are so attractive and well-marketed and glossy packaging for us. The twin lies that, that, if you, you, can, that you can control some things in your life, you do have authority over your own life, and that, that the, the lie number two, that, that, um, uh, that, the, that will satisfy you to live that way. That you'll have freedom by maintaining your own authority. Um, but Jesus has the authority, not us. And only surrendering to his authority gives freedom. Freedom to follow Him. Freedom from the slavery of our own selfish desires. Freedom to become like Him in God's image. Loved ones, bow to Him. Give up your authority, your claim to it, and accept His authority in every area of your life. The second call to repentance here that Jesus gives is to give up your hypocrisy. So number one was give up your authority, accept Christ's authority. Number two is give up your hypocrisy, verses 28 through 32. Along with the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, refusal to give up their authority and accept Christ's is their refusal to give up their hypocrisy and accept the heart change that Jesus offers. So Jesus, addressing this, tells a parable. Um, G.K. Beale, a, a, a theologian, New Testament scholar, G.K. Beale, he calls the Bible's apocalyptic literature spiritual shock treatment, right? to, to shock, to, 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 to wake up uh, God's people to the realities that are, should be obvious to them. And uh, parables are, are, are very similar to that. Jesus' parables have a very similar goal. They're spiritual shock treatment uh, to wake us up to the realities of the gospel. Jesus is, is, is using these parables to shock us awake to how much we need to repent here. Um, he tells this, this first parable, and there's these, man, this man, he has, he has two sons, and as any good father would do, he says, son, go do some work in the garden. Go out to the vineyard, it's time to get to work. Um, the first son, what does he say? No. Um, that's a shocking thing in the first century for a son to say to his father, flat out, no, I won't do it. Um, that's disobedience. That's rebellion. Um, but after that, the son goes out. He has a change of heart. 
He regrets what he said. He's sorry for what he said. He's grieved about it, and, and, and he doesn't just feel bad about it. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go work after all. I'm going to go do what my father told me to do. And he goes, and he works. He does what his father asked him. So there's this complete turnaround. Right? He starts out in a place of rebellion and sin, open rebellion and sin. No, Dad. But then, turn around. He wants to obey his father, and he starts obeying his father. Then there's the second son. Dad says to the second son, go work in the vineyard. Second son says, yes, sir. Yes, dad. And then he goes out and he goes and does whatever he wants. He doesn't go work in the vineyard. Um, Notice that Jesus doesn't tell us that this son changed his mind. That at first he was saying, yes, dad, and then decided not to after that. All along it was a lie. He never had any intention of going and doing the work. He just wanted to please his dad on the outside, but do what he wanted himself on the inside. Um, There's no repentance. There's no change in him. Um, He just goes out and does what he wants to do. The first son, Jesus tells us, represents open, flagrant sinners. Sinners who just outright sin against God openly against God. Jesus identifies them as the tax collectors and prostitutes, quintessential sinners of first century Jewish society. The worst of the worst in in, in the eyes of, of most Jews. They're not paying lip service to God. They're not putting on an act, not putting up a front. They know they're sinners, and they just keep sinning. Um... No pretending going on in their lives. Jesus doesn't minimize their sin, the sin of uh, embezzling or, or, or prostitution, uh, but, uh, but he, he, he says that if they repent, if they grieve over their sin and turn to him, then they will receive forgiveness. And, and Jesus, Jesus compares the, 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 the older son in the parable who, who at first outright disobedience, then complete turnaround to obedience. He says so many of the sinners in Jewish society were doing that. They had been living these lives of flagrant disobedience and rebellion to God. And then they heard the word of the gospel that John the Baptist preached and then that Jesus preached. And they repented. They stopped their sin. They turned around. They started following Christ and and His message and they repented and believed in the Gospel. That's the first shock of the parable for us that Jesus is giving us. That it's the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes who are repenting and that they receive the kingdom. In fact, Jesus, He says, they enter the kingdom before you, Pharisees, scribes, priests, The second shock of the parable um, comes in in whom the second son represents. The first shock, sinners go to heaven. Sinners enter the kingdom. The second shock, the priests and the scribes are not repentant. They're not obedient. Um, He levels, Jesus levels this charge at them through this parable. He's saying, your whole obedience to religion, the sacrifices, right? The, the, the priests are the ones in the temple offering the sacrifices and managing Jewish religion. The scribes are the ones who know the Bible and teach the Bible. And Jesus is saying to them, all of that is like the son saying, yes, dad, and then doing whatever he wants. 
It's a front. It's an act of some kind of surface-looking-good obedience. But underneath, everything about them on the inside, Jesus is saying, is rotten, self-centered, and turned away from God. The scribes, the priests, did not think they needed repentance. They thought they were okay. Uh, Maybe a little bit of repentance here or there for that little thing or that little thing, but not whole person turnaround repentance. But this is what Jesus is calling them to. He's telling them, stop acting. Stop all the talk about being part of God's covenant and going to the temple and offering sacrifices and singing the psalms when your heart is so far away from the Lord God. Again, brothers and sisters, we need to ask, well, what about ourselves? Jesus' words were a shock because the priests and the scribes had convinced themselves they were God's people, but Jesus is showing them it's all an act, it's all a lie, that they're performing this before him. That underneath all the religious habits was a heart that was far away from God, not repenting and not trusting in Christ. Loved ones, let us not be self-deceived and let us, let us not uh, just give lip service to Jesus while walking out after church and nothing changes and there's no repentance. Our whole hearts need to be directed towards Him and our lives under His authority, lives of following Him. He calls us not to a hollow outward profession of belief and performative faith, but love to Him, following after Him. Um, to, 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 to have a whole heart before Him. So give up hypocrisy and embrace the heart change that Jesus offers. That's the second call to repentance. The third part of this call to repentance is give up your idolatry. Verses 43, uh, 33 through 46. The third thing that Jesus challenges the priests and the scribes to do is to repent and to give up their idolatry. He gives another round of the spiritual shock treatment, another parable, um, even more forceful, perhaps, than the last. And in this one, he digs down and he excavates the foundations of the, of the religious leaders' hearts and he finds idolatry there and their rejection of him. And then he shows them the consequences of that. In the parable he tells, uh, there's this man, again, a, a man who owns this vineyard, and this man does everything necessary to make the vineyard flourish and do well. He puts the fence around it, plants a hedge so that it's, it's safe, uh, uh, the animals aren't going to get in and take the fruit, thieves aren't going to come in and steal. Um, he, uh, he cares for it, he puts the wine press in, he builds the tower so that workers can be in there, keeping an eye on things and making sure it stays safe. Um, and then the, the owner leases it out. To, the, uh, to, to tenant workers. This was a common thing to do at the time. You, if you're an owner of a vineyard, you hire people local to it to do the work, and they receive a share of the profit, and then they give part of it to you, the owner of the vineyard. Um, but if the owner was absent for a while, three years, um, then the tenants rent leasing this, this vineyard, they would get to keep it for themselves. Squatting rights, sort of. Um, so the owner is not going to let this happen. He wants to send his servants at harvest time 
to where the vineyard is and collect the rent. It's what's due to him. He wants to collect his share of the crops. But the tenant workers have a different idea. They like having the vineyard. They'd like it to be their own. So they kill the servants. The owner sends more servants. They kill them, too. The owner sends his son. They'll respect my son. And they drag him out of the vineyard. And they kill him. It's a brutal story. Something out of a Cormac McCarthy novel. Something out of the Wild West. This is, this is brutal violence that's going on here. What is Jesus communicating through this parable? First, he's showing the priests and the scribes that their rejection of Jesus, they're the, they're the tenants, right? Leasing this out, killing the servants who come from God. Their rejection of Jesus is the culmination of a long history of rejecting God throughout Israel's history. Um, the servants represent God's prophets sent to Israel over and over. God keeps sending prophets to his people saying, here's my word, calling them to repentance, calling them to faithfulness. And so much of the time, God's people hate the prophets, the true prophets from God. What do they do? They, they persecute them. Think of Ahab and Jezebel persecuting Elijah. Uh, think, of, um, think of Jeremiah being thrown into a muddy pit by uh, King Zedekiah or King Joash having the prophet Zechariah stoned to death in the temple. Jesus is pointing out this repeating pattern how throughout Israel's history, the leaders have so often been the ones rejecting God's servants. And now it's reached this crescendo with Christ himself, God's own son come to his people. Jesus is saying, I represent God. I come from God. I, 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 I'm the very son of the owner. And you guys rejecting me are like Ahab, Jezebel, and these wicked kings of Israel. The scribes and the priests never, ever would have dreamed that as they read their Old Testament, that they were like Ahab, Jezebel. But they, they tried to keep themselves from it. They didn't worship Baal, these gods, these idols. But Jesus is saying, your rejection of me is just like their rejection of God's prophets before. Why do they keep doing this? What, 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 what's behind this? This is the second thing Jesus shows us, shows them. Um, he uncovers their idolatry, which is driving this rejection of God. Um, that reason that the tenants in the parable keep on killing those the owner sends to them is that they want it for themselves. They want the produce of the vineyard all for themselves. They want to own the vineyard themselves and enjoy 100% control of all profits and not have to worry about the owner of the vineyard. They want authority over this vineyard and they want everything it has to offer for themselves. And Jesus is pointing out that the scribes and the priests here are doing the exact same thing with God. They want the blessings God gives, but they don't want God. They want the praise of being leaders in the religion of, 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 of the Jews, but they don't want God himself. 
They don't want the Savior. Loved ones, we should pause very carefully as we, as we think about the way Christ is speaking to them and, the, and their response to Him. They, they, it never would have crossed their minds that they were the sinners who so needed to repent. They thought they were upstanding and, and, and good and, and religious. Um, um, but Jesus says, you're like Ahab and, and Jezebel and, and these people of Israel who, who persecuted the prophets before you. Their entire religion is centered on themselves. Let us not have self-deceived hearts, brothers and sisters. Don't have anything else at the center of your religion but God. Don't have any other ultimate reason for being a Christian than Christ. The scribes, the priests, their whole, everything was about themselves. All the worship, all the sacrifice, all the scriptures, all the outward stuff. they, They had themselves in the center of it all. They were doing it for me, for for themselves. Don't live like that. Have Christ at the center of your Christianity. The third thing that Jesus warns them here is that God's judgment is coming on them. God has been patient, long-suffering. He keeps on sending his prophets over and over. The owner of the parable keeps on sending the servants over and over. But they reject his son. And now his wrath is coming on them. And their privileges will be taken away. Jesus says the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing fruits. To to people who respond with faith, repentance, and trust. It's so interesting here that as Jesus is telling this parable, he comes to the end of it. He asks the the, the religious leaders themselves um, what the owner of the vineyard will do. And they give him the exact right answer for once. Uh, they themselves predict their own fate. Verse 41, they say, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Um, as soon as the, as the word is out of their mouths, Jesus turns it on them to say, This is what is going, God is going to do this to you. You have rejected me, but God has chosen me as his Messiah. He picks up in the language of Psalm 118 to describe this. Psalm 118 talks about how there's this stone, and the builders look at it and say, ah, it's not a good stone. Stick it in the discard pile. But then God chooses that stone for his building, for his people to to build everything on. It's the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that sets the whole structure. We look at the one, at the Messiah, and we say, ah, no, no outward form that we should desire him. But God says, I'm going to use what is weak to shame the strong. They looked at Jesus and they said, he does not measure up to my ideas about what Messiah should be. Um, No, thank you. Uh, But God says, he is the one who is the Savior of my people. And so, if you reject him, if you reject Christ, then God's judgment is that you will be yourself rejected, exiled from his kingdom. If you reject him, Jesus says, continuing with the imagery of the stone, he says, if you reject me, you will either fall on the stone and be broken, 
or the stone will fall on you and you'll be crushed. Loved ones, I want you to see the stark choice that Jesus is, 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 is presenting them and us here. There is only one right answer, and there's only two choices, one that leads to judgment and one that leads to salvation. On a test, you know, sometimes you've got multiple choice questions, and it sometimes it lists A, and then B, and then C is neither A nor B, and then D is all of the above, and it's confusing. Jesus is not giving a test like that. There's only two choices, only two answers. It is either, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or the stone will fall on you and you'll be crushed. Do you see it? There's not a middle ground with our Lord Jesus Christ. He will do, loved ones, Christ will do one of two things for you. He will bring you to heaven or send you to hell. Those are the only two things He does with people. Right? He either saves coming in His grace and His love and laying down His life for you, or He comes in His wrath to judge you for your sinful, rebellious, hypocritical, stubborn, idolatrous unbelief. This is what Christ is pushing on the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests. And it's the choice that He presents with us as well. Will you have Me as your Savior? Or your Judge? The great tragedy of the text here is that even after Jesus has said all this and even after he's shown the religious leaders how much they need to repent um, and, and seek his mercy after his, his incisive and devastating parables like sniper accurate bullets getting right to the heart of their problem and their sin, even after he's done this, they walk away blind. Just as blind as before, even more committed to destroying this Jesus. Instead of saying, I need him as my Savior. What a sinner I am. I I need him as my Savior. They won't let go of their puny, pathetic little kingdoms and their own authority that they pretend to have and bow to his authority. They won't let go of their hypocrisy, that paper-thin veneer of their own self-righteousness, and accept his righteousness and the heart change that he gives They won't get up off the throne of their hearts that they're sitting on and give it to Christ. They'd rather starve than taste the feast of His grace. Loved ones, Jesus calls you to give up your authority, give up your hypocrisy, and to give up your idolatry. And in exchange for them, take Him. Receive all that He has to give you. Maybe you say, well, pastor, that sounds good. I want to repent more. But I know that tomorrow when I wake up, my heart is going to be set on autopilot to the same old habits of claiming my own authority and living in my own hypocrisy and my own idolatry. What do I do? I I, I want to repent. How do I repent? What's the answer? It's to go to Christ, isn't it? It's to go to our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to say, well, I'm going to try harder and harder and harder by myself. I'm going to do better tomorrow. It's to say, Jesus, 
I need you to save me so much. I can't even repent by myself. I need you. Oh, how wonderful it would have been if one of the scribes, one of the priests, one of the Pharisees, there as Jesus tells the parables, the others walk away, but this one falls on his knees. Say, oh, I, you're right. Everything you said about my heart is right. I can't even repent properly and change myself. I need you, Jesus. Loved ones, let us do that. He saves those who call on him. Not those who perfectly repent but those who cry out to Him for mercy. So let's go to Him. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, thank You for this wonderful Savior, Christ.